Nehemiah, not a book of the Bible that a lot of people frequent in their spare time. Okay, we love the Psalms, Proverbs, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Nehemiah is not really one of those that we go to a lot. But um, I'm excited because we're going to spend, Lord willing, the, the kind of the bulk of our fall semester in the book of Nehemiah. We're just going to kind of work through it, uh, kind of section by section, chunk by chunk. And so uh, if you have your own Bible, I would encourage you to mark Nehemiah because we're going to be there for a while. All right. Um, but I'm excited about the book of Nehemiah, even though it's not a book that maybe like you're really familiar with or not a book you frequent. I'm excited about it because even though it was written uh, some 400, between four and 500 years before the birth of Jesus, uh, it actually contains a lot of really relevant and timely uh, things that I, I think we, we can learn from and glean from in kind of the day and age in which we live. And so um, anyways, I'm excited to jump in. Uh, we are going to start in Nehemiah chapter 1. So as has been the case the last couple of weeks, I'm going to invite you to stand if you are able. And we're going to read the first four verses this morning, all right? So this is Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. So a good place to, to start this morning is just kind of where the text starts, uh, and that's introducing us to this man named Nehemiah. Okay, at this point in history, we don't know much about Nehemiah. We're just kind of introduced to him here. We, uh, all we really know is what the text tells us at this point. Right, that he's the son of somebody named Hakaliah. Right, he's not a he's not a king. He's not a prophet at this point in time. He's not a historical figure. Right, just uh, just a dude. Okay, and here uh, and actually in a few verses we'll in, we'll learn a little bit more about him. Um, that's more for next week. But what we learn is that he's a cupbearer to uh, King Artaxerxes. Okay, and we know that he's located at this point in. Uh, Susa, the citadel, which was basically kind of like where the Persian kings went uh, during the winter months. So it was like Pensacola, Florida for Persian kings. It's kind of what it was. Uh, but the reason he's there is because he is a cupbearer to the king, which is a really uh, important, trusted position uh, at that time for this Persian king. The cupbearer would not only supply um, the wine and the drink for the king's court, but part of his job was like he's trusted so that like it was easy to be poisoned and stuff back in that day. So he's in a position, uh, not necessarily of authority, but an important position. He's, he's in a trusted position. And so um, one of the things I found interesting, though, is we kind of, this is sort of, here's what this morning will kind of be an introduction into the book of Nehemiah is really kind of what it will be. Uh, but, but as we kind of move into that, one of the things I found interesting as I studied this week is that the name Nehemiah actually kind of like 
sets the tone or, or gives us some foreshadowing for the rest of the book. Okay, the, the name Nehemiah uh, literally means the Lord comforts. Right? The Lord comforts. Uh, and the reason that's significant is because the context and the setting in which Nehemiah uh, is written or, or the context surrounding the book was really one of the uh, really kind of one of the, like the darkest, bleakest moments in God's plan of, of redemption. Okay, to, we'll take, talk more about why here in just a minute, but um, to make sure that like, we're all on the same page, right? Um, like the, the, the context and setting of the book, I think in a way is kind of like, parallels maybe where we feel like we are sometimes. Um, I want to be clear, like I'm not a doomsdayer, okay? Like I'm, I, don't, I don't think, I'm not chicken little thinking the sky is falling, like it's just not my personality, um, right? Maybe it is and I'm just oblivious to it, I don't know. If it is, I hope you'll let me in your bunker one day when I come knocking, okay? But, right, so I'm not a doomsdayer, I don't think the sky is falling, like I'm not an alarmist, but I do think, like, it's, it's naive to pretend like nothing is happening, at least here in, in Western society, right? And, and kind of what I mean by that is, um, I mean, like, this has been going on elsewhere in the world since the beginning of time, so there's, there's nothing new under the sun, right? But, but for us here in a Western society where, like, cultural Christianity has kind of resided and, and reigned for so long, um, like, it just feels like something's happening, okay? And, and there's some objective evidence, right? Church attendance is at an all-time low right now. There's plenty of studies that would say that church attendance is declining, and that's, like, that's also, that's not just people out there. That's even among professing Christians. I think the average, the average regular attender attends church like 1.6 times a month right now, right? We, it's absurd, right? Um, on top of that, the, the fastest growing religious group in America right now is the nuns. Okay, not Catholics, but like N-O-N-E-S, right? People who just have zero religious affiliation. They're like, we don't really believe anything. Okay? All right, and then um, while we aren't like persecuted in the ways that, that brothers and sisters are in other parts of the world and really have been for for centuries, um, it at least feels like here, like Christianity or the Christian worldview is, world is just kind of seen as like a nuisance. You know, like, like we're just kind of like pesky people, right? Like it just feels that way, right? And so the reason I say that is because it brings us back to the, the book of Nehemiah. And the reason I'm looking forward to going through the book of Nehemiah, because again, it takes place in, in a in a setting which things did not look good, okay? Uh, and you'll learn more about that this morning and the weeks to come. But what Nehemiah does is it, is it gives us this sort of framework, or this direction uh, to say, one, that the Lord does comfort, right? They're gonna, they find themselves in a pretty, pretty terrible situation. And what we will see as we move through the book of Nehemiah is that the Lord meets them there and he comforts them in a time where like it, things did not look great. They were less than ideal. Right, but it also, the book of Nehemiah, what it also does is say, 
it, it says or teaches us or kind of gives us a framework for even though things may not look awesome, even though we may be discouraged, um, even though things may be less than ideal, the response is not to like crawl up in the fetal position in the corner and just wait for it to pass. Right? Because what the book of Nehemiah does is it gives us like a, a vision, a way forward in which like the, the people of God literally, like they roll up their sleeves and they get to work. Right? They're like, man, things look bad right now. We've got work to do. And I think that's a word that, that we need to hear. Right? So that when we kind of look at what's going on in the, in the society and the world around us, like the last thing we should do is like, hunker down in fear and be like, mm, I don't know, let's just wait till the storm passes. All right, let's just hide here until Jesus comes back. Like I think if anything, the word of God and the, and the spirit compels us to, to go, right? to confront darkness, to confront situations that are less than ideal. And that's kind of the path we're going to see in the book of Nehemiah. So anyways, here's, like I said, this morning will kind of be like an introduction to the book in a way. Uh, but I got three things I want you to see this morning that are going to sort of frame the book as we launch into it. Three things. Here they are. There's a broken people. There's a broken city. And then we're going to see a broken heart. All right? A broken people, a broken city, and a broken heart. So to get us sort of headed that direction, look back at verse 2. It says this, Han and I, one of my brothers came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. I'm going to do some work here to make sure we're all on the same page, right? because this is a real story, uh, real people at a real point in history, so like, I want to make sure we all understand what's going on here. Um, kind of a high-level overview. I don't want to get into a bunch of details, but basically, to make a long story short, after years and years and years, really generations of sin and rebellion and disobedience, uh, God's people, both the um, northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, they find themselves, they've been like overrun by the Assyrians and, and eventually the Babylonians, and they're in exile. Right, so they've been overrun, they've been kind of dispersed and shipped out to, to different places. Um, and, and God had warned his people, like, again, for generation after generation, that this is what would happen. And he says, hey, if you, if you continue acting wickedly, if you continue worshiping idols and false gods, if you continue your idolatry, uh, kind of like following the, the, these foreign nations and, and the things that they worship, if you continue in that direction, um, like, I'm going to give you over to your enemies. Right? And that's what he did. Years and years and years and years and years, they act corruptly and wickedly. They follow the false gods of foreign nations, and so God makes good on his word. He says, hey, that's what you want? Have at it. Right? He really just kind of gives them over to what they were seeking. We see the same thing in Romans 1, where God says that he, he gives, gives us over to our own desires. In fact, that's a, this is not even in my notes, but that's a terrifying place to be. Right? If you find yourself in a place where like, you can be so like engrossed and engulfed in sin and like you don't even care. Like that should terrify you. But anyways, back to where we are. So they find themselves exiled because of their sin and rebellion and disobedience. But right, because God is gracious, because he is kind, because he is merciful, 
because he is good, like we just sang about, right? he, he does not utterly destroy his people. Right? What happens is, uh, just as he had promised to kind of give them over to their enemies if they continued in sin and rebellion and disobedience, what he also says is, eventually, you turn to me and I will restore you. I'll bring you back to your land. Okay, and so that's what is kind of starting to happen here in the book of Nehemiah. They've been exiled. Um, and so after some time in the exile, they are uh, eventually given permission by these uh, army or by these nations that are ruling over them. They're given permission to return to their land, right, to Jerusalem. Okay, and so Nehemiah asks, like he gets these visitors that show up, uh, and, and, and he asks, he's like, hey, how are things going back home? Right, I hear that, that our people are getting to return to Jerusalem. They're getting to go back home. How, how are things going at home? Right, and here's the response he gets in verse 3. It says, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So how are things going back home? Not great, Bob, right? Not going well. Okay, you've got a broken people. You've got a broken city. I'm going to chat about each one of those for just a bit, all right? So let's talk about the broken people. This is the, the people of Judah coming back to Jerusalem. Uh, one of the things to, to make clear is they're not coming back to uh, Jerusalem because they like conquered the Assyrians or the Babylonians. Uh, th th there was no great like military feat, right? They're not, like what happened is the God who's sovereign over all of human history, he, he uh, as Proverbs says, he uh, in his hand is like the, the heart of kings and he turns it just like a stream. And so God turns the heart of uh, the, the, the Persian king, and he, he turns his heart, and he says, you can go, tells the people, you can, go back to your, you can go back to your land. Okay, so they're not coming back to Jerusalem like with their heads held high and their chest puffed out because they've just like dunked on these guys. Right? They're, they're kind of coming back, like the text says, in great, they're in great trouble and shame. Right? They're, they're kind of coming back home with their tail tucked between their legs, in a way. Right? Because... Again, the, the, what, what got them to exile was a long period of sin and disobedience and rebellion, right? And so they're coming back like in, in shame over that, right? To, to be reminded, they walk back to the city and it's destroyed, to be reminded that the reason it's destroyed is because of our sin and our shame and our disobedience and our rebellion. And so they're coming back to Jerusalem as a, as a broken people. Right? They're, they're, they're coming back walking with a limp. And here's what's worth considering. Were it not for the grace and the kindness and the mercy of God, they would have remained enslaved. They would have remained exiled. They would have remained uh, devastated by the consequences of their sin and rebellion and disobedience. Right? But but praise God, he doesn't, he doesn't leave his people to be devastated by their sin. Right, that was true then, right, four, five hundred years before the birth of Jesus. That's true now. 
I mean, this is where the, the gospel is good news. Because we've all sinned. We've all rebelled. We've all given ourselves over to the pursuit of worthless idols and uh, worldly pleasures. We've all done that. In, in ways, we've all spent time alienated, separated, exiled from God as a result of, of our sin and our shame and our disobedience. Right? Maybe some of us are still there. And so like this community of, of broken, or like this exile community, we are a community of, of broken people. Like, like by default. Here's, here's how Paul, right? I'm jumping to the New Testament now. You don't have to turn there, but it should be on the, actually, I don't think I put it on the screens. I don't remember. Either way, it's Ephesians 2. Here's how Paul kind of describes our default condition. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Right, broken, enslaved, dead, children of wrath. That's the default condition of the human heart. That's the condition in which we all uh, either once walked before we trusted in Jesus or if we've never entrusted in Jesus, like that's where you are now. Right? And that's a bleak picture. Right? But, but Paul goes on in verse 4. He says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show, listen to this, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Listen. In our bleakest, darkest moment, dead in our trespasses, right, God extends grace and mercy to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right, so that all who believe, all who trust in the name of, of Jesus are, are not only uh, forgiven of our sin, I mean, that's great news, but um, did you catch what, catch what he said in verses 6 and 7? Not only are we forgiven of our sin, but we're raised up with him and seated with him so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What? Like, that's absurd. Right, that we would sin and rebel and disobey and reject him and that he would still move toward us in grace and mercy and that he would lavish us in it. Right, like, God doesn't, some of you need to hear this. God doesn't just like begrudgingly forgive you and then tolerate you. Right, that's not what God does. Right, he lavishes you in grace and mercy and kindness. And it's not because you're awesome. It's because he is. It's because he is. 
Right? Listen. We talked about the people of, of, of in Nehemiah's day, in that context, being a broken people. We are a broken people. But the good news of the gospel is that God delights. He delights in redeeming and restoring broken people. Because right? he gets the glory for it. It's not about us fixing ourselves and making ourselves presentable. And no, it's, it's God moves towards us and steps in and says, hey, I'll, I'll save. All I need you to do is trust and believe. All right, but in order to receive that grace and that mercy and that forgiveness, like you've, you've got to acknowledge that you're actually broken and in need of redemption. So, back to the text. Right, we talked about a broken people. But we've got these broken people turning to, returning to, a broken city. All right, look at verse 3 again. Nehemiah asked them, what's the report? And they say, the remnant there is in, in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And then he says this, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. All right, so here's the significance of this. There's a, there's a couple things. The first one is kind of more obvious. The reality is, is they're going back to a city that was once you know, surrounded by this great wall that was built uh, by their like, fathers generations and generations ago, and now there's, there's nothing. And so in that day and time, to go to a city, and that be like your home, but there will be no walls around it or, or anything to protect you from, from the enemies, like that's a very vulnerable place. And so you've got this broken people returning to a broken city, but they've got no protection they're vulnerable for from uh, vulnerable to another attack, right? To be uh, oppressed and enslaved, maybe even exiled again, right? It says they were in in great trouble, and we'll talk more about the actual building of the wall in the weeks to come, because really the first half of the book is all about that wall. Okay, but but maybe the second thing that I want you to see, maybe not as obvious, but throughout like redemptive history, all throughout the Old Testament specifically, you see that Jerusalem is uh, the, kind of the, the center of worship for God's people. Okay, and, and really, um, Jerusalem stands out as a, as a witness to both them as a people, but also to, uh, to sort of the foreign armies and foreign nations uh, looking in. Like Jerusalem was a witness of God's presence and power among his people. It was this sort of visible, tangible, like that's where God dwells among his people, right? If you know anything about the history of Jerusalem, that's where the temple was. The temple was where the Jewish people performed their, uh, their acts of worship and offered their sacrifices. It was where uh, inside the temple it was where um, the, the most holy place or the holy of holies was, which is where uh, God dwelt, like, like actually dwelt among his people. That's where the high priest would go in once a year and offer uh, sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of, of all the people, like would intercede for them. And so, like, Jerusalem is a significant place for them, but also for those on the outside looking in would say there's something significant there. Right, that's really kind of why they wanted to return to Jerusalem in the first place. This is where we go. This is where, this is where we worship. Right, but now, what we learn here is that Jerusalem has been, it's been destroyed. Like, it's it's been desecrated. Right? The, the wall, non-existent. The temple, destroyed. 
right? The city devastated. And so now, like what was once a witness, both to God's people and to a watching world of, of his power and presence among them, all of a sudden there is no real discernible witness. Right? What they knew as their place of worship, as their place where God sort of met them and dwelt with them and among them, now it's just a pile of rocks and, and rubble. A broken people, a broken city. And so to connect the dots a little bit, some right, we, we exist here 24, 2,500 years later. Uh, we, we don't have, on this side of the cross, we don't have like a city we go to and say like, that's where we meet with God. Right, if you were here a few weeks ago and Pastor Luke preached, that's one of the things he talks about from John 4, that Jesus came and said, hey, there's coming a day where like, you won't worship God in just Jerusalem or just this place or just this temple. Right, so we don't have a a city, per se, that we have to go to or like do a pilgrimage and, and go and offer our sacrifices. Right? Jesus came, he was a sacrifice, sacrificial system, done. But while we don't have a city that stands out as kind of a witness of God's power and presence among us, what we do have is a church. Right? That's, and, and really, that's kind of one of the many things that the church is or what it should be. I don't, I, don't mean the, I don't mean the building. That's not what I'm saying. I mean the, the people of God, the church, the collective community of followers of Jesus, like what we are as we assemble, as we are a witness both to ourselves, among ourselves, and to a watching world of God's power and presence among us. Right? And, and again, like I said earlier, I'm not a doomsdayer. Just not. Just not my personality. Uh, I, I'm also... I'm also not a curmudgeon, though I feel like I'm trending that way as I get older. Like, I don't know if that's normal for everybody, but like, I'm not a curmudgeon. So like, I, I'm not someone that thinks the church is in ruins. Okay, I don't believe that at all. I actually believe, want to believe even more that when Jesus said, hey, uh, I'm building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that like, that actually means something. Like, I want to take Jesus at his word when he says that. And so, like, my, my opinion is, like, if the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church, then I'm not worried about some hot-button cultural issue or political agenda or, like, the church is going to be fine. Okay? But here's what I also know is that there probably are some things that, that we as the church both like universally, like out like other churches, but also locally, like this church. There are some things that we could do to be a, a better, more faithful witness of God's power and presence among us. Right? Some of these things, like I I think I mentioned some of these earlier. Just just consider this, right? Church attendance is on the decline, like here in America. And again, that's among professing Christians. Right? It's just like, yeah, church attendance kind of, hmm. Like instead of it being like kind of what's normal and expected for believers, it's almost like that's slowly becoming this thing that's like, to go to church every week, that's, that's for like the super elite. Okay? So church attendance is on the decline among professing Christians. Uh, the, the pursuit of and growth in personal holiness feels like it's more and more kind of seen of like 
as like something that's optional, right? Like to, to actually grow in sanctification, to put to death sin and, and struggle. Like that seems like it's being seen more and more as like some sort of optional add-on for the Christian life. Like we just, like give me that get out of hell free card, but don't expect me to actually transform my life to conform anything like the one that Jesus has called me to. Like that seems to be more and more consistent. Right, you wanna get real controversial? Um, right, to, to paraphrase something I heard J.D. Greer say uh, a few, I guess it's been a couple years ago now about the church. More and more it feels like the church is kinda of getting in bed with politics and the offspring doesn't exactly look like our heavenly father. And what I'm getting at, like we could go on and on and on, but here's, here's the point. Is the church is meant to be a witness, both among us and to a watching world, of God's power and his presence among us. Okay? But listen, if our commitment to the church, if our involvement with the church, if it doesn't impact our schedules, if it doesn't like transform our moral compass in any way, if it doesn't make us think twice about like where, where we prioritize our, our highest allegiances, then what kind of witness are we? Right? I mean, like, like why in the world would we want, like why in the world would anybody look at us and say like, man, I want what's going on in there if what's going on in here doesn't look any different than what's going on out there. Like, as the people of God, like, we're just called to be a witness of God's power and presence among us as part of what the church is. So like the city of Jerusalem was, was broken in Nehemiah's day, there are aspects of the church that are broken today and need to be addressed and need to be fixed Right? And I'm, again, I'm talking about like the church universal, but we're a part of the church universal. Right? There's parts of the church that are in need of some restoration and some rehabilitation, and that begins with repentance. And so with that said, here's what I want to look at. We kind of wind down here. Nehemiah's response to all of this. Right? So he gets... He asks, hey, how are things going back home? They tell him, hey, there's a broken people. There's a broken city. And here's what Nehemiah says in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The people were broken. The city was broken. And Nehemiah's heart was broken. All right now we'll do a, a deeper dive. I don't want to preach next week's sermon this morning, so we'll do a deeper dive into Nehemiah's prayer and his fasting, his confession. All right, but for our purposes this morning, I think Nehemiah's response should prompt us to do some soul searching of our own. All right, and so here's here's kind of the question I want to I'm going to leave you with this morning, kind of put before you for you to think about and consider, and, and again, we'll kind of tackle this a little more in depth next week, but, but here's this. Are you broken? 
And what I mean by that, like we talked about a broken people, a broken city, Nehemiah's heart's broken. Are you broken? And I don't mean broken as in like, are you sinful and like in need of a savior? The answer to that is yes. Okay, I know that. Right? The, the cross has already outed you. You're not fooling anybody. Okay, but what I mean is, is are you like, are you broken and crushed over your own sin? Over your own struggles? Right? Are you are you broken and crushed where, uh, where the church just doesn't feel like we're living up to what we're supposed to be as the people of God? Right? Are you, and over you, are, are you, are you, are you broken? Have you just gotten comfortable kind of just going through the motions? Are you so comfortable in your own sin that it just feels like second nature? Or, or worse yet, like, You've come up with your own reasons to justify it so that you can continue in it. I guess, what I'm, I guess what I'm asking is this. Are you broken over the things that breaks God's heart? Are you broken over the things that, that, that breaks God's heart? Because the reality is that until we are broken, like, we'll never walk in freedom. We'll never walk in the fullness of what God has for us. And then corporately, together as a church, until we are broken over the things that break God's heart, like we'll never be the witness of God's power and God's presence at work among us. So in, in a way, here, here's how this kind of works. In a way, this is not a great illustration, but it's the best I had. We're kind of like glow sticks. You guys know what glow sticks are? You rip a glow stick out of the package like it doesn't do much. You got to break it first. In a way, we're like glow sticks. We will not be the light, be the witness that we're called to be unless we're first broken. I mean, I know that can be a scary thing. Like, we live in the social media age, Instagram, whatever is hot now, TikTok, I don't know. I, I don't use hardly any of it anymore. I feel like maybe I am getting, becoming a curmudgeon. But like I, I know we live like in this space where it's like we want to project our successes and our strengths and want to hide our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities. And so I know it's a scary thing to acknowledge that, that we're not living up to what we're supposed to live up to. Right? But, but the, the promise from God, from his word, is that... Like, when we acknowledge our brokenness, like, he doesn't, like, turn his face like, ugh. No, that's, that's where he actually moves towards us, is in our brokenness. Because, again, like, we, we don't receive grace and mercy and forgiveness until we actually acknowledge that we're a broken people. So, here's, here's kind of the, the good news that we see here, is that God often breaks before he rebuilds and restores. Right, we see that in the, in the people of God here in the book of Nehemiah. Like they're a broken people in a broken city and the book of Nehemiah is going to be this great account of how God rebuilds and restores what was broken. Right, but the same, same is true for us. We want to see God do a, a work of rebuilding and restoring and rejuvenating Refreshing, other words to start with RE. <laughs> if we want to see God do that among us, like it's, 
It's going to start with us being broken. It's going to start with us being broken. And here's the good news. Again, to go back to the theme of brokenness. The reason we have hope, the reason we have this assurance that God meets us in our brokenness, the reason we know that God works through broken things is because this is, this is the gospel. Jesus' body broken and his blood shed so that, so that all who believe might be restored into a right relationship with God. And so we're going to end our time together this morning as, as you've guessed here. We're going to end our time together receiving the Lord's Supper as a reminder that God has redeemed and restored us as his people through Jesus' body broken for us. And so uh, it, this is for those who have trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Hey, if you're, if you're not here and you're like, man, I've, I don't know if I'm a Christian or maybe I've just got some questions or doubts I'm still trying to figure out, I'm thrilled that you're here. Right? I, there's no place I'd rather you be. But I would just say this part of the service is for those that have trusted in Jesus Christ. Okay, And then for those of you that, that have placed your trust in Jesus, I want, like always, we do once a month, I want you to come forward, grab these, uh, take them back to your seats, and then we will uh, receive them together corporately. I'll come back up and lead us through that as we receive it together as uh, a family. All right, so I'm going to pray for us, then we'll respond. Father, we come to you this morning, and uh, Lord, just grateful that, that brokenness is not the end of the story. I'm grateful, Lord, that you redeem broken things that you delight to redeem and restore broken people. So this morning, Lord, as we come to this time of response, um, or just would ask that you would reveal to us, Lord, where, where we need to be broken in the right way, where we need to, Lord, see our, uh, our sin and our flaws and our failures. Would you reveal to us our our areas that we have not surrendered to you individually, Lord. And I pray that as we do that together corporately as a, as a church body, that you would um, Lord, begin a work of, of restoration and even rebuilding here, that we would, we would grow all the more into the, the witness that you've called us to be uh, in the place and space that you've put us. But that begins, Lord, begins here begins with us. I think of the, I don't even know where it originated, but the, the quote about, Lord, we want to see a revival, but it begins by drawing a circle around ourselves and standing right in the middle of it and say, start it here. And so, Lord, I pray that we would um, be broken for the things that break your heart, that we'd be broken over our own sin, but that we would see that you are a gracious God that, that offers us grace and mercy and the forgiveness of sin as we repent and return to you. And so we're reminded of that this morning as we receive uh, the bread, Lord, your broken body, the, the juice is a reminder of Jesus' blood shed for us. So Lord, would we 
receive these elements this morning with, with grateful hearts. And Father, maybe there's one here this morning that's, that's never received Jesus as Lord and Savior, never repented of their sin or put their trust in Jesus. I pray that this, in this moment this morning, you might provoke something in them. Lord, to, to have a conversation with myself or with someone around them about what it means to follow Jesus and trust in him. But Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace and mercy extended to us. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.